hint of a cooling breeze. The rest continued along, headed for the market on High Street. Here, three city blocks were crowded with vendors calling their wares, while eager shoppers studied merchandise or haggled over weights and prices. Horse-drawn wagons clattered up and down the cobblestone street, bringing in more fresh vegetables, squawking chickens, and squealing pigs. People commented on the stench from Ball's Wharf, but the market's own ripe blend of odors, of roasting meats, strong cheeses, days-old sheep and cow guts, dried blood, and horse manure tended to overwhelm all others. One and a half blocks from the market was the handsomely refurbished mansion of Robert Morris, a wealthy manufacturer who had used his fortune to help finance the Revolutionary War. Morris was lending this house to George and Martha Washington and had moved himself into another larger one he owned just up the block. Washington was then president of the United States, and Philadelphia was the temporary capital of the young nation and the center of its federal government. Washington spent the day at home in a small, stuffy office seeing visitors, writing letters, and worrying. It was the French problem that was most on his mind these days. Not so many years before, the French monarch Louis XVI had sent money, ships, and soldiers to aid the struggling Continental Army's fight against the British. The French aid had been a major reason why Washington was able to surround and force General Charles Cornwallis to surrender at Yorktown in 1781. This military victory eventually led to a British capitulation three years later and to freedom for the United States and lasting fame for Washington. Then, in 1789, France erupted in its own revolution. The common people and a few nobles and churchmen soon gained complete power in France and beheaded Louis XVI in January 1793. Many of France's neighbors worried that similar revolutions might spread to their countries and wanted the new French Republic crushed. Soon after the king was put to death, revolutionary France was at war with Great Britain, Holland, Spain, and Austria. Naturally, the French Republic had turned to the United States for help, only to have President Washington hesitate. Washington knew that he and his country owed the French an eternal debt. He simply wasn't sure that the United States had the military strength to take on so many formidable foes. Many citizens felt Washington's proclamation of neutrality was a betrayal of the French people. His own Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson, certainly did, and he argued bitterly with Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton over the issue. Wasn't the French fight for individual freedom, Jefferson asked, exactly like America's struggle against British oppression? The situation was made worse in April by the arrival of the French Republic's new minister, Edmond Charles Genet. Genet's first action in the United States was to hire American privateers, privately owned and manned ships, to attack and plunder British ships in the name of his government. He then traveled to Philadelphia to ask George Washington to support his efforts. Washington gave Genet what amounted to a diplomatic cold shoulder, meeting with him very briefly, but refusing to discuss the subject of United States support of the French. 
but a large number of United States citizens loved Genet and the French cause and rallied around him. Pro-French sympathies were further heightened in July by the sudden influx of 2,100 French refugees who were fleeing a fierce slave rebellion in Santo Domingo. Pro-French demonstrations were held near the president's home and escalated in intensity. Vice President John Adams was extremely nervous about this French madness and recalled that 10,000 people in the streets of Philadelphia threatened to drag Washington out of his house and effect a revolution in the government or compel it to declare war in favor of the French Revolution. While Washington worried, the city's taverns, beer gardens, and coffee houses, all 176 of them, were teeming with activity that Saturday. There, men and a few women lifted their glasses in toasts and singing and let the hours slip away in lively conversation. Business and politics and the latest gossip were the favorite topics. No doubt the heat, the foul stink from Ball's Wharf, and the country's refusal to join with France were discussed and argued over at length. In all respects, it seemed as if August 3rd was a very normal day, with business and buying and pleasure as usual. Oh, there were a few who felt a tingle of unease. For weeks, an unusually large supply of wild pigeons had been for sale at the market. Popular folklore suggested that such an abundance of pigeons always brought with it unhealthy air and sickness. Dr. Rush had no time for such silly notions, but he too sensed that something odd was happening. His concern focused on a series of illnesses that had struck his patients throughout the year. The mumps in January, jaw and mouth infections in February, scarlet fever in March, followed by influenza in July. There was something in the heat and drought, the good doctor speculated, which was uncommon in their influence upon the human body. The Reverend J. Henry C. Helmut of the Lutheran Congregation, too, thought something was wrong in the city, though it had nothing to do with sickness of the body. It was the souls of its citizens he worried about. Philadelphia seemed to strive to exceed all other places in the breaking of the Sabbath, he noted. An increasing number of people shunned church and went instead to the taverns where they drank and gambled. Too many others spent their free time in theaters which displayed rope dancing and other shows. Sooner or later, he warned, the city would feel God's displeasure. Rush and Helmut would have been surprised to know that their worries were turning to reality on August 3rd. For on that Saturday, a young French sailor rooming at Richard Denny's boarding house over on North Water Street was desperately ill with a fever. Eighteenth-century record-keeping wasn't very precise, so no one bothered to write down his name. Besides, this sailor was poor and a foreigner, not the sort of person who would draw much attention from the community around him. All we know is that his fever worsened and was accompanied by violent seizures, and that a few days later he died. Other residents at Denny's would follow this sailor to the grave. 
a Mr. Moore fell into a stupor and passed away. Mrs. Richard Parkinson expired on August 7th. Next, the lodging house owner and his wife Mary, and then the first sailor's roommate. Around the same time, two people in the house next to Denny's died of the same severe fever. Eight deaths in the space of a week in two houses on the same street. But the city didn't take notice. Summer fevers were common visitors to all American cities in the 18th century, and therefore not headline news. Besides, Denny's was located on a narrow, out-of-the-way street, really more an alley than a street. It is much confined, a resident remarked, ill-aired, and in every respect is a disagreeable street. Things happened along this street all the time, sometimes very bad things that went unnoticed by the authorities and the rest of the population. So the deaths didn't disrupt Philadelphia much at all. Ships came and went, men and women did chores, talked, and sought relief from the heat and insects. The markets and shops hummed with activity, children played, and the city, state, and federal governments went about their business. No one noticed that the church bells were tolling more often than usual to announce one death and then another. They rang for Dr. Hugh Hodge's little daughter, for Peter Aston, for John Wayman, for Mary Shule, and for a boy named McNair. No one knew that a killer was already moving through their streets with them, an invisible stalker that would go house to house until it had touched everyone, rich or poor, in some terrible way.